Welcome back to the Growing Patriot Podcast. It's me, Amelia Hamilton. This week, we're going to learn about three more colonies, New York, New Hampshire, and New Jersey. And once again, we've got one of my favorite kids with us. This is Sadie Markowitz. I'm eight years old. I live in Brooklyn, New York. Hey, Sadie. How about a preview of your questions for this week? Were there food shortages during the cold months? Oh, that's a good question. Were there Jews among the colonists? Why do New York, New Jersey, and New Hampshire all have new in their name? What were some popular jobs in New York, New Jersey, and New Hampshire? Good. And we will get right back to those as soon as we talk about the history. In 1629, a land grant was given to Captain John Mason to create New Hampshire, but he died in 1635 without ever having seen it. Isn't that horrible? Massachusetts was right next door, and they and New Hampshire argued over the land for so long. In 1679, King Charles II finally issued a royal charter for New Hampshire and made John Cut the governor, but that did not settle the problem at all. After Charles II died, his brother became the king and was known as James II. Now, he was also Catholic, and as you might remember from last week, people didn't necessarily want a Catholic king. So he was actually kicked out, and they made his daughter and her husband king and queen. They were William and Mary, and they were Protestants. So in 1691, William and Mary issued a new charter again, saying that New Hampshire was its own place. But from 1699, they still shared a governor with Massachusetts, so it was still kind of a mess. Now, when Queen Mary died, King William ruled by himself. And then when he died, Mary's sister Anne ruled. But when she died without any kids, well, there were a lot of people in line to be king, but most of them were Catholics. So they had to go all the way to this man named George. And he became King George I, And they picked him because he was a Protestant and a descendant of King James I, but there were actually 50 people that were closer to the crown, but they were all Catholics, so they had to go with George. Anyway, his son, King George II, finally set where the border was for New Hampshire and made sure that the governor of New Hampshire and Massachusetts were different people starting in 1741. Because New Hampshire was one of the oldest colonies, it also has one of the very first settlements. The oldest settlement in New Hampshire was a place called Dover, and that was only the seventh settlement in what would become the United States. New Hampshire was one of the four New England colonies. The others were Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. They were really Puritan colonies and weren't very tolerant to other religions. Now, you'll come to see that that's really not the case with New York and New Jersey, the other colonies that we're talking about today. On that note, let's just move right along to New York. New York actually has kind of an interesting history because it wasn't always an English colony. It was French and then Dutch. And then in 1664, when the Dutch and the English were at war, the English won what was then called New Netherland, and it was given to James, the Duke of York, by his brother, King Charles II. I know it's really confusing, but you might remember that James will then become King James II. And when he becomes king, 
New York becomes a royal colony. At first, it was actually called the province of New York. Because New York already had such a diverse history, it had a much more diverse attitude toward religion. But you'll hear more about that later. Now, New Jersey was also part of that same deal between the English and the Dutch in 1664, but originally the colony was East Jersey and West Jersey, and they each had their own constitution, but the two sides were always fighting over where the border was. It wasn't until 1702 that they became one colony, New Jersey. Their first governor was a man named Edward Hyde, Lord Cornbury, but he was not a very good guy. So he was sent back to England, and the New Jersey colony was ruled by New York's governor. So it wasn't until 1738 that the New Jersey colony was finally separated from New York and had its very own governor, Lewis Morris. Because Sadie asked such good questions, there's really not a lot more I can tell without spoiling the answers. So let's just go straight to that. We have such a great guest today joining us to answer Sadie's questions. Alison Scatino, Associate Director of School Programs with the New York Historical Society. So Sadie, let's go again with your first question. Were there food shortages during the cold months? Yeah, so when I first saw this question, I actually looked it up myself um, because I know that food shortages could be a problem. Um, particularly because everybody's growing everything on their farms. And so while we today can go to the grocery store at any time of the year, summer, winter, spring, and fall, and get access to any vegetable under the sun, whether it would be a fresh vegetable because it's in season, or if it's not in season, we could get a canned vegetable or a frozen vegetable that's been brought in from somewhere else. They didn't have those kind of technologies in the colonial period. So even in a regular year, it would be the case that a family that lived on a farm would have access to fresh vegetables early in the season, and then they would can whatever they could that was left over. But over the winter, they might really only have um, the animals that they had on their farm that they could um, slaughter and raise, or um, the grains that they'd put away. So diets varied a lot. Um, that said, in my research, I didn't find any particular terrible food shortages that happened in New York or New Jersey um, in this period. Um, nothing that stands out as like, this was a year of famine. Um, <laughs> sure. But I think it was just, yeah, just sort of a back and forth, you know, some years would be leaner and some years would be better. The other thing to remember is that all of these colonies were so well connected to their their main countries in Europe, that in bad years, ships could be brought over with food that would help folks. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. There's actually, if you don't mind my sharing, there's a really great document from um, very early on in New York, back when it was New Amsterdam and controlled by the Dutch, where they had a rule that if you weren't pulling your weight, then the company that owned the colony wouldn't give you food. Um, So it was understood that the mother country and the colony and the company are supposed to be providing food for folks, but if you're someone who wasn't pulling your weight and doing the work, then maybe you wouldn't get the same food as everybody else. Oh, wow. And her second question. Were there Jews among the colonists? 
Yeah, so I'm going to specifically talk about New York because that's the one that I'm most familiar with in this case. Um, and there is a Jewish population that goes all the way back to 1654, and they actually formed the first official Jewish synagogue and congregation in North America. It's called Sheriff Israel. Um, and again, it goes back to 1654. It starts with a group of Jewish refugees. So these are folks who were living in Brazil when it was owned by the Dutch. And then the Dutch lose Brazil um, in a war. And the folks who take over Brazil kick all of the Jewish people out of it. And so most of them head back to Europe, but a couple start heading north. And they end up in New Amsterdam, which is another Dutch colony at the time. Um, and New Amsterdam was an interesting colony in that, unlike a lot of the others that make up the original 13, it wasn't founded for religious reasons. Most of the other colonies were founded by religious groups that came over here. You have Maryland and it's Catholic. You have the Puritans up in um, New England. Mm -hmm. But the Dutch colony was founded purely as a trade port. And they had a hard time getting people to move there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. When you have um, a trade port that's in a place that's cold eight months out of the year, um, and then you have trade ports in places like the Caribbean, not a lot of people are going to choose to go to the one that's cold <laughs> eight months out of the year. Um, so one of the early things that they did was they made it anybody who was willing to work for the colony and pay their taxes um, was welcome to come and move there, um, regardless of their religious identification or um, what country they were from. So the, the New York colony was really diverse really early on for that reason. Um, sort of became this scrappy place where lots of people from all over the world kind of came and settled down because it was the one where anybody was welcome if they were willing to do the work. Um, that said, when the Jewish um folks, I think it was something like 23 families, um, when they arrived in New Amsterdam, there's a new governor, Governor Peter Stuyvesant, um, and he really didn't like the diversity of New Amsterdam. He thought the diversity was a weakness, and it was going to end up sort of tearing the community apart. So he did his best um, to kick the Jewish people out of New Amsterdam, but these Jewish people were very smart, and they knew their rule, their, excuse me, they knew their rights under um, Dutch law. So they appealed directly back to the Dutch government back in Europe um, and told them, this guy's trying to kick us out. He's taxing us more. He's not letting us do all the things citizens are allowed to do. And Peter Stuyvesant gets a very stern letter um, from the Dutch West India Company and from the um, government in the Netherlands uh, telling him, you need to stop. <laughs> Good. <laughs> you need to let these folks get, exactly. You need to let them get on with their lives and get over your own personal problems with them and um, let that be the end of it. And that's the beginning of this Jewish community that then founds the first synagogue and congregation in New York called Sheriff Israel, which is still a congregation in New York City today. Um, they have a really long, wonderful history of being a safe space and a community for Jewish people in the city of New York. Oh, that's so great. Why do New York, New Jersey, and New Hampshire all have new in their name? <laughs> this is a great question, um, and one that we get a lot at the New York Historical Society where I work. Um, and it has to do with what happens when you leave a place you've always lived behind. 
So we have to put ourselves in the mindset of people who were, say, born in England, lived there for 10 or 20 or 30 years, um, and then it becomes a place they can't live anymore um, for a variety of reasons. Maybe they, they, they don't have a farm there and they can't support their families. Maybe there's someone who's um, attacking them because of the religion they follow. Um, maybe they were on the wrong side of a political battle and it's become an uncomfortable place to live. There were a lot of reasons that people were moving over here. But that doesn't mean they didn't love the places that they came from. And so a lot of the naming conventions in the colonies are based on the places that people were originally from. So New York is an interesting example because it actually had a couple of names um, before it settled on New York. And they were all based on which folks were moving in at which time. So originally it's called New Netherland, and that's based off of the Dutch colonists who came over and founded the colony first. Um, even some of those Dutch colonists weren't actually Dutch. Some of them um, were Walloons from Belgium. And so those folks and all of their stuff just called the place New Belgium, although that was never officially the name. Um, and then when the English come and take over New York, that's when they name it New York. Um, and that's based on the name of James, Duke of York, who's the guy who took over the colony. But York is also a really major city in England. Um, New Jersey is named after the Isle of Jersey, which is one of the islands in the British Channel. And New Hampshire is named after Hampshire, which is one of the counties in the country of England. If you go smaller than just the names of states, um, right down to the names of cities or beaches or all those other kind of things, oftentimes you're going to find names that have European origins, um, especially in the New York, New Jersey area. It's either going to be a European origin or it's going to be based off of the original names that native people gave the area. Like the island of Manhattan is based on the word Manahatta, which meant land of many hills in the Muncie language, the people who originally lived in this area. But then the city was named New York after the Duke of York. Oh, I like how it shows the, the diversity of, of the peoples, you know, the, all the different. It's, yeah, it's, it's really neat looking into naming customs, and that's true across the country. Mm -hmm. um, the names that places are given, you know, as you go farther out west, you find a lot of new Rome's. You find a lot of places that are named after um, German cities, uh, and that's because those were the immigrants who were moving to the U.S. at that time and settling them. Okay, and Sadie's last question is, what were some popular jobs in New York, New Jersey, and New Hampshire? I would say the jobs in the mid-Atlantic region, which is what we call the New York, New Jersey, um, and New Hampshire region, kind of fall into two categories. The first job that most folks were involved in when they first came to this area was trade, um, which means buying and selling goods. Um, and the New York, New Jersey trade was mostly around the fur trade. So the colonists who came and set up here, um, at least those who are working for the Dutch, their command when they got here was make friends with the local native tribes. Um, and make sure that the fur trade stays strong, and then you'll get paid for every fur that you ship back to Europe. Um, and the fur that everyone was most interested in was beaver fur, um, because beaver were native only to North America, 
and their fur was waterproof. And in a time before the invention of plastic or rubber, having a waterproof hat or a cloak um, could save you a very expensive, very fancy um, silk and other gowns that uh, the royalty and rich folks were wearing back in Europe. So beaver fur was really popular. So then the first job that a lot of people came over here to do was to be involved in trade. Um, and just about everybody was involved with it in some way, whether you were like a housewife who, you know, whose husband would occasionally, you know, trap and kill a beaver. And then when a trader would come through, you'd trade off that one pelt up to folks who like owned warehouses and were, were, um, and had, what's the word, investments in ships and were really part of an official trade company. Over time, the, the fur trade sort of dies out mostly because they make the uh, animals they're trying to trap extinct in this area. Um, a fun side fact is that beaver are only just now in the last 10 years starting to move back into the New York area. Oh, my goodness. Um, no, I know. <laughs> uh, I think the first beaver moved into a river in the Bronx maybe five or six years ago. And it's a big local story. <laughs> <laughs> they hadn't been here in hundreds of years. Yeah. Um, so as the as the um, fur trade sort of dies off for that reason, um, folks start to turn to farming and producing um, natural resources that are going to be sold back to Europe. So maybe you're someone who's farming tobacco or wheat that can be sold and used to feed. Um, either the sugar colonies down south or folks back in Europe. Um, the lumber trade was a really big deal. Um, Europe had cut down almost all of their forests by this point in their history. And uh, so they needed folks who could ship trees back over so they could build their ships and their homes and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so it, it kind of shifts from being a purely business model to something a little bit more settled um, and producing natural resources that'll be used in other parts of colonial empires. Okay, great. And then I wanted to add my own question, and that was, um, what were what were the women doing at this time? Oh, this is great. This is something I'm so fascinated with. Um, when we're studying history, we often don't hear about what women are doing. And when we do hear about what women are doing, it's almost entirely about, like, they were in their homes and raising kids and um, taking care of their families. And that's true. A lot of women were doing that. But life in the colonies was so, what's the best word for it? so fragile. You have to imagine what a scary place it was to leave Europe where people had lived for thousands of years um, and then move to what was essentially considered the edge of the world. Now, there were native tribes that lived here and fully understood the land and how to live in it and had a very comfortable existence, but the Europeans who came here didn't understand that way of life at all. So you're coming here, you're starting a very small community. It might be you and 50 other people, and then you're just surrounded by wilderness. And in that circumstance, a woman can't just sit at home and sew all day um, because it's not an, everybody's not helping grow crops and um, make trays and all of that stuff then businesses aren't going to be able to survive, or businesses, excuse me, the colonies aren't going to be able to survive and function. They need every person to help them out. 
Um, if this is something you're interested in learning more about, the New York Historical Society is actually starting a whole new website this fall. Uh, it launches in November called Women in the American Story. Um, and it's going to eventually cover all 400 years of American history. Um, but one of the first pieces that we're doing is about women in this early colonial period. So before things got settled, before, um, you know, the population became such that suddenly people could relax a little bit. But in these early periods, where it really was a struggle to survive, what is it that women were doing? And how were their contributions important to building the country we live in today? Yeah. And I also wanted to mention that you guys have a lot of resources for curriculum on women. Yes, absolutely. So on women and just on the history of New York and America in general. So if you visit our website, nyhistory.org slash education, you can find our curriculum library, and it's full of principal resources. So primary source documents, photographs, paintings, pictures of objects from our collection. Um, the New York Historical Society was founded in 1804, so we've had a really long time to collect things. Yes. We have a really <laughs> fascinating collection of stuff. Um, and we use this and are trying to make it as available as possible for young people who are interested in history um, to be able to get their hands on the, the real stuff, to look at the same stuff historians look at and draw their own conclusions and start being part of that historical conversation. So we would love for more people to visit those websites and uh, start being part of this historical journey we're all on together. Yes. Source documents are so much fun. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, great. Um, well, thank you so much for joining me today, Allison. This was great. It's been my pleasure. I love talking about New York history um, and history in general. Sadie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Wasn't that great? Let's talk about what we learned today. We learned that even though things were really different and you couldn't just go to the store to get something frozen or canned, things weren't as difficult as you might think. There were really no big famines or anything like that. People just had to eat differently in different seasons, and they could get things from their home country in Europe if they needed to. There were Jewish people in the colonies going all the way back to 1654. That first Jewish congregation is still in New York today. Colonies started with new for the same reason a lot of places have the names that they do. They're remembering where they came from in Europe. People want to remember that where they're from or honor a place or person. As for the kind of jobs people had in New York, New Jersey, and New Hampshire, it was mostly trade, which is like buying and selling things. It started with fur, and then when the fur trade faded out, it went on to farming. It was things going back and forth to Europe. And it's really important to remember that it wasn't just the men, the women were working really hard too. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to stop by growingpatriots.com for coloring pages, videos, and other resources. You can find me at Growing Patriots on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and share this podcast with anyone else you think might enjoy it. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week to introduce you to the final three of the 13 colonies. Freedom.
us all from tyranny Risked everything for liberty And they thought so we would be America, land of the free America, land of the free